Welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, today is Tuesday, so it's the usual rundown with me and Hugo. And we are joined by Jocelyn Vaccaro. Jocelyn uh, works at Tusk Philanthropies, runs the Mobile Voting Project. Jocelyn, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Sure. And Hugo, uh, welcome back as always. So uh, I know you're going to interview both of us and really more, more Jocelyn than me. So l- l- let me toss it over to you and we'll kind of talk over the next half hour or so. Great. So Jocelyn, just to be clear with listeners, you're joining from from Denver, Colorado. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Okay. So we're going to want to talk a little bit about what's going on in Colorado at at some point in the conversation, but we're going to start with mobile voting, which um, is something that comes up kind of a lot uh, in this podcast because it's a a serious passion of, of Bradley's and something he's uh, thinks is, is, uh, is, is going to play a meaningful sort of role in our politics going forward. Um, or should play a meaningful role in our politics going forward. But so we're going to start, even though this is a topic that many listeners are at least familiar with, uh, we want to make sure sort of everyone's on the same page to start with. So I'm going to ask Bradley to do a 30 second elevator pitch on mobile voting. And I'm going to time it um, because it's so it's just 30 seconds. And I'm I'm going to press start right at the beginning. And then you're going to hear my alarm go off. And Bradley, when that goes off, you have to stop talking. Okay. Okay. Let's see how this goes. See if I can get it. You ready? I'm going to give you three, two, one, go. So our country is broken. Everyone knows that. And I think everyone also knows that politicians only act in their own self-interest, only to get reelected the next time that they're up. And if we want to change the way they behave, we've got to change the inputs. Right now, we live in a world where almost every election is gerrymandered. So only the primary really matters. And primary turnout is 10 to 15 percent. For as long as that's the case, all of the incentives will do nothing. Only way to fix that is to radically increase turnout, which means making it much easier for people to vote, so that allowing them to, allowing them to do so safely on their phones. There it is. How many seconds? That was like thirty seconds exactly. All right, I stumbled. Did you practice, Bradley. I just want to know: Did you practice? No, no, it's totally off the cuff. I uh, so one time, so uh, one night, Hugo and I are, are have some very good friends, Tom and Amber. Uh, hello, if you're listening to this. And um, one night, uh, I was over at their house. And I guess it was when we were talking to the TED Talk people about me doing um, uh, a TED Talk. I think that was right before COVID hit and that was the end of it. Um, and they said, well, you know, are you ready to do it? I'm like, yeah, I can do it right now. And they're like, okay, do it. And then for a second, I, I had you know, a few drinks or whatever at that point. I was like, I don't want to give a TED Talk right now. So, so I, I kind of in a weird way have like boasted that I could do what I just did without actually delivering on it. Uh, so it's good to feel. It's good to know that I, I can come through if I have to. Well, I'm also just impressed how much information you actually managed to pack, and pr- pretty coherent too. I'd say. Um, we'll see if the listeners agree. But I, I do but, talk about this a lot, so it's not that hard. But okay, so Jocelyn, that's the that's the elevator pitch to the to the great god of elections, and and now you're the person um, tasked with sort of making this happen. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your background? Um, you we mentioned before you're you're based in Denver. Um, you were the head of elections. Um, in the in the city of Denver, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I was director there for about three years and um, have run elections for the last ten years, including in Ohio as well as Denver. Um, and so, what is that? It, it, it sounds kind of obvious, but just would you explain what that job really entails, like um, for for people? I mean, it's it's such an obvious kind of piece of our you know culture and society, and yet I feel like it's sort of opaque a little bit about what it means to like run an election. 
Yeah, it, it's it's a job that that requires uh, a wide variety of skill sets. Um, so you know, you have to be a project manager, you have to be a contingency planner, an emergency planner, you have to be uh, an IT professional and and um, uh, an expert in information technology. You have to be able to communicate. Obviously, um, you have to be able to manage uh, diverse groups of people and diverse processes. Um, you have to be very detail oriented and task oriented. Um, so, yeah, it, it it it's a it's a job that that you know isn't great for everyone, but um, type A personalities like me, it's kind of perfect for. <laughs> now, it's a civil servant job, is that right? It's not an appointee job. Yeah, it is. It is a civil servant job. Um, in some places, it's an appointed, a political appointee job. In other places, it's a career service job. Okay. So, so you, you'd come from another place. You'd been in Ohio, you'd been running elections there. So you're sort of working your way up the chain, basically going from smaller jurisdictions to bigger jurisdictions. That's kind of how it works in the, in the, in the business. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's uh, terribly common for people to move around the country when okay. doing that job. But, um, you know, the, the city and county of Denver has has one of the best run and, and most innovative election offices in the country. And so when an opportunity came up there and, and, and also to move to Colorado, I, it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. When you say innovative, what, what do you mean? Like what makes their elections approach innovative? Uh, well, I think, you know, the, the former director, Amber McReynolds, who might be known to folks uh, who follow election administration news, um, um, I think really took the lead in, in, in um, uh, turning that office into a place where both new procedures, processes, voter-centric, um, uh, um, a voter-centric model was adopted, and and that included both technological innovation, but also just um, innovation in um, policy changes, innovation in um, procedural changes. So, you know, I think from moving um, Colorado and and led in part by Denver moved um, back in 2013 from a more traditional polling place vote on election day. Um, uh, voting model to the model that Colorado has now, where everybody receives a ballot in the mail. And if you want to vote in person, you can choose any number of vote centers to go to. You don't, you're not assigned to a location and you've got up to two weeks to vote. So it's a very voter centric model. And, you know, I think that plus, you know, the, the innovation that was done specifically in Denver um, was a huge attraction for me. Yeah. So Jocelyn, you're, you get approached, I imagine, by all kinds of vendors to do different things uh, for handling the vote. That's part of the job, I assume. Um, Bradley uh, Tusk comes to you and says, um, we're interested in doing this pilot program on uh, mobile voting. What's your initial reaction? Are you just sort of very skeptical right away of anybody coming to you with new ideas? How do you, how do you vet them? Like, what, what's the basic approach? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think when we were first approached by both the Mobile Voting Project and by the National Cybersecurity Center and by the vendor community about doing a mobile voting pilot for our municipal election cycle in 2019, um, I was really excited. Number one, at the opportunity um, from from sort of a, a that voter centric model of how do we make voting easier for, for voters who have a lot of trouble voting. Um, so the pilot that we did in 2019 was 
specifically for military voters and overseas citizen voters. Um, and these are voters who don't have access to mail um, delivery and, and were relying on technology that required them to have a printer and a scanner in order to take advantage of digital absentee voting options. So when, when we were first approached, it was, it was purely from that perspective of, okay, this sounds like something that's going to make voting a lot easier for those voters. And I'm really excited at, at any opportunity to do that. Um, the, the main um, caution was, of course, around the security of the platform. But, you know, the Mobile Voting Project in particular um, uh, and the security researchers that, that um, Bradley and the team were working with really helped allay those concerns. Um, and and address any of the questions that our team had about about the security of the platform. Now, Bradley, when you were looking around for for cities and and jurisdictions to 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 run these these sort of experiments or these pilot programs, they're not experiments. Um, what what about Denver stood out to you? Like, why why did you end up there? Yeah, a, a few things. One is obviously Colorado is is one of the leaders in election reform in general. They were one of the first to do vote by mail. Maybe they were the first to do vote by mail. Um, and Amber McReynolds, who Jocelyn just mentioned, was working with us already. And so we had uh, kind of some insight and window uh, specifically into Denver and into Colorado. Uh, obviously, Jocelyn's interest and willingness to, to do this. Um, and also, look, they had the jurisdiction to do it without legislation. Uh, part of how we figure out where to operate is eventually we're going to have to pass bills in all 50 states. And Jocelyn and I are working on that right now. But at the same time, you know, we're reluctant to invest all of the money and effort in passing bills just to allow, you know, small groups of people to vote on their phones, just because it feels like a bad use of our resources. Um, and so we're somewhat limited at the moment to the election directors, whether they're state election officials or city, um, who can, through their own authority, allow something like this to happen. Denver happens to be one of them. So, Jocelyn, when... They come along. You have this. You have this outside interest in doing something in Denver. Um, what do you have to do then, or what did you have to do as as a as sort of a, as a as a local person to make sure people wanted it there? You think it's a good idea, but do other people think it's a good idea? Like, how do you even test that concept with your? you know, with the, with the, the people of Denver? Well, it was actually a very easy sell and, and I, um, and, and I'll explain why. So the traditional method that I mentioned where voters, um, who are eligible for this, which, which in Denver's case was just military and overseas voters, they were already eligible to receive a ballot electronically. And they also had the option to return a ballot electronically. In Colorado elections um, that are governed by the Secretary of State and, and under um, Colorado election laws, um, the Secretary of State hosts a, a secure ballot return site, which is like a secure file transfer site um, for voters to upload um, an encrypted version of their ballots, their voted ballots and their voted and their signed uh, voter affidavits um, to that, that site in order to return their ballot electronically. In Denver's municipal elections, which are under Denver municipal uh, charter and, and municipal ordinances, not state law, um, we, were, we didn't have that option. We didn't have a, any uh, access to the state's secure site, number one. So that, that was issue number one we were trying to solve. Number two, the only other option available to those voters was to send a PDF attachment in an email. So we were basically looking at um, a, a system that provided no security for those voters and required them to give up their right to an anonymous ballot 
in order right. to use that that return option. So mm -hmm. it was very easy to sell. It was easy to sell to city council. It was easy to sell to the, the elected clerk at the time, um, who also, of course, had to had to um, approve this. Um, and it was easy to sell to the public because it was just obviously better. Yes, I mean it, it was definitely better than email number one, um, and it provided a more convenient option for those voters as well because they didn't have to have a printer and scanner. They could do everything right from their mobile device, including signing their affidavit. And so it was just a better system overall for, for, for our voters. Yeah, but Hugo, to kind of move us into the next part of the conversation, yeah, sure. it worked in part because we were able to demonstrate that it was secure. We were able to do so, I think, in part because the, the product had already been tested and worked elsewhere, um, but also in part because it, it was a pretty small experiment. There weren't that many people participating the uh, you know uh, deployed military. So uh, one of the reasons that we then uh, announced and, and put together this whole grant program to fund the development of new voting technology was to basically take those concerns that were raised by the cybersecurity community, address them in full, and be in a position where we can say to voters, media, elected officials, everyone else, uh, this is completely secure because once we do that, the only people who will oppose this are those who will lose power specifically by the system changing. Uh, which are still a pretty big impediment to winning, uh, but it, at least it takes their best argument. So let's take those two things separately for a second. Let's start with a smaller one or in the moment, which is people who have sort of ideological opposition to this, you know, who, or maybe not even ideological, but pragmatic in sense of like, we're, our power is going to be reduced because of, because of expanding, potentially expanding the, 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 the electorate in this way, or the, the, not the electorate, but the people who are actually voting. Did they, did any of that pop up in in Denver, Jocelyn? Were there were there people who are like we don't like the smell of this, or um, you know we don't we, we're worried about where this will take things? Um, actually, no, <laughs> we didn't we didn't receive any any feedback like that in Denver um, when we ran the pilot. But you know that was primarily because it was for uh, a small group of eligible voters, um, and this is a group of voters who you know typically don't participate in local elections. Right like hardly at all. I mean, they, they live overseas. They're not, they're not in Denver. Do they, they, they don't necessarily care who the mayor of Denver is. So it's not an election they, they tune into anyway. Um, number one. And number two, you know, we also were very transparent about everything that we were doing. So we, we, we were um, very transparent in the announcement. Um, we made the, the vendor available to reporters to talk to We made obviously the mobile voting project was available to talk to reporters um, and then after the election was over, we ran a public audit um, and actually, you know, did it on a Facebook live event. So anyone could tune in and watch the actual audit process of all of the votes that were cast digitally through mobile voting. And we even invited independent auditors. And I think there were I think there were close to 20 independent auditors who did their own audit of this of the system um, and offered feedback. Josh, didn't you also do a poll of those who participated and have like the system at like a hundred percent approval rate? Yeah, we, we surveyed our, any voter who used the system, um, we invited to, to fill out a survey and a hundred percent of the respondents, and it was about half the people who use mobile voting filled out the survey and a hundred percent of them said they preferred that voting option to all other options available to them. Justin, what was the total number of voters then who used it? 
Um, we had, so again, we're talking military and overseas, very low participation in, in these elections. Um, so there were 120 who used it in the municipal election and then 112 used it in the runoff. Okay. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a small group. So that's, um, that's, but that's, you know, that, that's, that's an interesting number. So nonetheless, I mean, that's, that's a, it's a real group of people. Yeah. And look, real, real votes that were counted in real elections, but th- that's effectively why we kind of moved into the next step of the project of, of funding the construction of, of our own technology. Because what, I think what we saw is if you look at the seven states where we did mobile voting, whether it was for deployed military or people with disabilities, it was always for very, very narrow groups of voters. So at most, it was a couple of thousand votes here, a couple of thousand votes there. And while the technology that already existed could clearly handle that, you know, the reason we're doing this is to exponentially increase turnout in primaries all across the country, which means we'll need to be able to handle hundreds of thousands, even millions of votes. Uh, and that requires probably a different level of technology, uh, which is why we, we made this move. Talk about working with the, so you're actually working with some of the original critics of the approach. Is that correct? I mean, this, this is, this is, this is really bringing in some of the skeptics on, into the tent and saying, okay, help us, help us do this in a way that is, that is a hundred percent secure. Yeah. Jocelyn's the one that, that has all of those hard conversations. So <laughs> let her. <laughs> well, tell me about those hard conversations. Are they, are they, when, when you, when you, when you frame it that way, do they immediately turn around and be like, all right, let's, let's talk. Or is there some resistance or what, what have those conversations been like? Well, I think I think I'll say two things. Um, I would say first, the approach that we're taking on this project is different than any of the technology for mobile voting that's out there right now. And that's and that's the that's the um, to Bradley's credit and to and, and to our work um, and the lessons that we've learned and the feedback we receive from the security community. You know, I think we really took it to heart. Um, so we're taking a completely different approach with this project. And and when I say that, um, number one, our goal is to make this open source and transparent so that those outside scrutineers, those academics, those researchers can take a look at the underlying source code, identify any vulnerabilities that our developers, our grantees may miss and provide feedback Um and, and, and therefore make this completely transparent, um, number one. And then number two, we're also following the recommendations of the cybersecurity community who've done research in this space already and published a report six years ago on how to, what, what an internet voting system or a mobile voting system like this would need in order to, um, you know, be the best form of, of a secure system. And, and, and secure, I'll put in quotation marks because no system is 100% secure, including paper. Um, so, so this system is going to be fully end-to-end verifiable um, using the, the, the methods that that research that was put forward by the U.S. Vote Foundation um, um, suggested. And that means that, that from beginning to end, voters will be able to confirm that every part of the system is working the way it's supposed to. They can confirm their ballot is recorded correctly. They can confirm it's sealed correctly. They can confirm that it was received correctly. And then the members of the public can confirm every part of the system worked as well. And at no point in time will a voter secret ballot need to be sacrificed in order to accomplish that. So it's it's going to be a different type of system. And I think following the recommendations that those security researchers have suggested means that that hopefully we'll be able to prove that they're that that what they recommended can be accomplished. And and that's what we're setting out to do. Right. 
I just have a couple more questions, Bradley. I want to ask you. So this is now into like more than five years that you've been working on this issue. Yeah. You've, you've now got seven pilot programs under your belt. Um, what's, what have you learned in that process? When you started out, what did you, what did you not know that you know now and that is sort of guiding the, the strategy going forward? Yeah, I, I think a few things. I think one is um, what I didn't know then was that we wouldn't not only have opposition from all the people who risk losing power uh, under a, a much higher turnout system, but there's a lot of people within the election world who are very invested in whatever approach they think makes the most sense, paper ballots or vote by mail or whatever it is. Um, and there are a lot of cybersecurity experts who, um, rather than seeing the potential for their field to solve some of our biggest problems of democracy, uh, are more interested in just being quoted in some article talking about why this is too risky. Um, and so I, I think I didn't anticipate kind of that level of, of opposition. It, it's fairly low level opposition. So um, if we can't clear this stuff, then we were never going to succeed in the first place. And, and right. we will. Um, uh, but I, I think that, that I, I think I thought people who are more sophisticated politically, who didn't benefit from the current system, would understand this better and gravitate towards it. Um, and I think to me, it was less of a conceptual leap than it seems to be for me. Jocelyn, um, if we're doing this conversation again in a year, um, which we will be doing, um, what's, what do you hope will be different in a year? What's, what's going to happen between now and a year from now? Like what's the, what's the, what's the one year goal? I think two things are, are underway right now that I hope will be different. Um, first, I hope that we, this technology project will be done and there will be a product ready for pilot for piloting. So ready for testing, whether it's in a public election next November, or if it's tested first in sort of a lower stakes, you know, election um, next year. Um, I hope that we will be able to prove that, that we can have an end to end verifiable system that's usable, that's accessible, that's transparent, and that can increase confidence, you know, not only in, in mobile voting, but in our voting process in general. Um, and then number two, you know, there's work being done at the University of California, Berkeley Center for Security and Politics um, to develop a set of recommended standards governing draft digital absentee voting um, that will hopefully offer a, a, a new set of benchmarks on, on what the technology needs in order to be usable on a wider scale in public elections. Um, and hopefully those draft standards will be out and we'll be able to measure the technology we're developing against those and other technology in this space. And it will provide policymakers with, you know, the, the tools they need to make sure when they're passing mobile voting legislation, they're doing so um, with the knowledge that there are security standards in place for this technology to address their concerns about security and that election administrators have some method that they're familiar with to certify that the technology they want to use because they want to make voting easier for their voters too, um, that they have some way of measuring that that technology is safe. Right. Um, let me ask you, I want you both to answer this question um, and it can sort of be the, the, the last bit of our conversation on this issue. But um, obviously in the last, you know, since, since, since 2020 election, um, election officials around the country are really under a microscope in a way that um, they really haven't been, at least in my lifetime. Um, how does that 
change the terms of the campaign at all? Like, like, is there is there a lot of risk aversion out there? Is it an opportunity in disguise? How would you characterize? I would say all of what's happening, both in terms of Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, um, the DNC screwing up the mechanism for reporting the Iowa uh, caucus results from 2020, um, the you know concerns of hacking from places like Russia, and then ultimately kind of the limitation of voting rights in states like Georgia and Texas collectively make our job and what we're doing that much harder and that much more necessary, right? right. Um, for all of those reasons, you know, the polarization and dysfunction and divisiveness that we have as society is worse than it's ever been. Uh, look, as we've discussed, Hugo, before on this podcast, right now in Washington, Democrats control both chambers of Congress and the White House, and they still can't pass their agenda, right? They can't even figure out what to do amongst themselves, let alone ever work with the other party. Um, and so uh, what we're doing is is more needed than ever, I would argue. And I do think we have some very specific uh, arguments that we can make. So, for example, if you look at Texas and Georgia, um, to me, the greatest way to, to stop voter suppression is let people vote on their phones. Uh, you know, the reason that they pass those laws is to try to limit um, not just Democratic votes, but I think specifically votes from people of color. Um, when you press a button on your phone at your home, it's not an issue, right? So the idea of showing up at a, at a polling place and then someone working there trying to come up with reasons why you can't vote, that wouldn't happen. And so I, I do think the technology does directly address some of the concerns that we've seen raised uh, about this and, and some of the challenges we faced over the last few years. Um, but look, it's just, it makes the job that much harder. J- Jocelyn, how would you, since you're, this is your profession, I mean, you've now moved sort of outside the, the, the elections administration business, but you know that field really well, you know the people in it. Um, how, how have they been affected by, the, uh, by all these things that Bradley mentioned over the last couple of years? Well, I think I think you know I mentioned at the top that that election administrators have to be information technology professionals. They also have to be cybersecurity experts. Number one, and they've grown very used to having um, conversations with IT professionals, national security experts, et cetera, about foreign actors and foreign threats, and 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 learning how to secure their systems against any of those those foreign actors. And that's post twenty sixteen, post twenty twenty. You know, has introduced a whole new level of threat for election administrators, and and you know you see that in the news, um, where uh, uh, election administrators are getting death threats continuously for the last year, um, and and you know so that the profession has just become so under even an even greater microscope. Election administrators are now known by name. Some of them are household names, um, people who you know are are not typically the type of people you see on national news. Uh, cable news coverage are now regular features. Um, and, you know, and it's because of of everything that's happened over the last year related to the administration of elections and, and then calling into question our democratic processes and, and our democracy itself. So, you know, I, I, I feel for my my, co- my former colleagues and, and have just nothing but admiration for the work that they do and everything they've had to endure. Um, but to Bradley's point, I think all of that speaks to why this technology is more needed, uh, because it it would reduce the impact on in-person voting by making by adding voting options, by providing voters with more convenient tools to exercise the right to vote will make the entire process better. Number one. And I think it also makes our elections more resilient against pandemics, against the climate emergency, natural disasters, and other threats. 
Um, but then it also um, provides greater transparency into our democratic process. And, you know, people were glued to the TV for four days after election day in November, watching um, election officials opening ballots in Pennsylvania or Georgia or, or Phoenix. Um, so, you know, we, we all know what, what election offices do uh, to process ballots now, um, having watched it on a live stream, basically. Um, but, but this would even make our elections more transparent, you know, more than just watching video streams of people opening ballots, people would be able to verify for themselves that everything is working correctly through a system like the one we're helping to develop. So I think all of those things make this technology that much more needed. Very well said, Jocelyn. Thank you for that. Now, as you, uh, as you know, as, uh, we, we know that you listen to, to firewall closely as do, you know, as this you know, points. Five yes. billion people on the planet. Um, we, 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 <laughs> especially after we talk about really serious things like this, we, we like to just sort of catch up on, you know, what what uh, what Bradley's been reading, watching, um, et cetera. So the three things that we talked about uh, just before the uh, the recording began, Bradley and I, um, and I'm going to ask you this, Jocelyn, because I'm curious, are these like sort of New York-centric things that people care about in Denver? They don't. But the three things that we that, that Bradley mentioned um talked about the Bond movie briefly. We talked about um, uh, Squid Game, the the Korean uh, television series that like everybody's obsessed with um, in in New York City, as far as I can tell. And then um, we, Bradley also mentioned the Money Heist on on uh, on Netflix, which is a Spanish show. Have have any of those made any inroads um, in, in your community, among your family members and friends, Jocelyn? Uh, I would have to say no. <laughs> My my world is currently occupied by baseball playoffs and Ted Lasso season finale, which aired on Friday. Um, and my family personally, and I know a lot of my friends and colleagues are anxiously awaiting season three of Succession. Sunday night. Set to start Sunday season. night. Yeah. Yep. Sunday <laughs> night. Um, okay, that's that's a good answer. I'm, 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 I'm glad to know that. Bradley, give us the, um, I'm just going to ask you about one of the three so that we don't go on at length here. But um Bond movie. Give me your 30 seconds on it. I can do it in one sentence. <laughs> it's actually hard for a movie to be that violent and that boring at the same time. Oh, my God. That does not oh, sound wow. like a rave. <laughs> no, I did not. I'm not a huge Bond fan in general. So I think people who are must like it. and It has gotten good reviews. Um, I was really bored and Abby fell asleep uh, during it. And Lyle, Lyle liked it. And that's why we went. But um, but but yeah, it wasn't wasn't for me. Good. All right, Jocelyn, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we really, really appreciate it. Uh, Bradley, you want to say anything and signing off? Or are we done here? No, 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 I think I think we're good. Thursday, we're doing John Kelly. Is that right? From Puck? That's correct. Cool. So Thursday, tune back in. John Kelly's got a new media site called Puck. Uh, had a really fun. That was like one of the most fun podcasts we've ever done, actually. Uh, so that's going to post on Thursday. So hopefully we'll see you guys again then. Great. Thanks, Jocelyn. Thank you.